you're walking down into the canyon and every step there's progress because you can see yourself descending into the canyon. And on the end, as you're ascending and getting out of it, there's this sense of accomplishment because every step you can see the next rim getting closer and closer and closer. But over half of your walk that day is in the middle where the rim behind you and the rim ahead of you do not change relative size that you can see. And it's that's the hard... People think that climbing up out of it must be the hardest thing. No, it's not. Well, then going down must be the hardest thing because you're jamming your toes. No. The hardest thing is the flat walk in the middle for hours and hours where you cannot see physical progress by the rim behind you looking smaller or the rim ahead of you looking bigger. And that's what most of our spiritual walk is. We can't see the progress on a, on a daily basis. You just have to know there is progress happening and keep walking. You just heard Carl Vaders, who is my guest here today on the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. This is episode 41. My name's Matthew Bruff. I'm a pastor in a little church in Winnipeg, Manitoba, in Canada. I'm an author and a podcaster, clearly, as I'm doing a podcast here. And uh, I've got this great guest on today who um, has written and does a lot of speaking about leadership in the small church. He's the author of a couple of books. The Grasshopper Myth was his first book, and the subtitle is Big Churches, Small Churches, and the Small Thinking that Divides Us. And I've been reading Carl's stuff for a number of years now, maybe about five years, and it's just fantastic stuff. It's really kind of filling a bit of a void that is sometimes there in the church where we're, uh, we've got lots of resources that are written from a larger church perspective. Um, but uh, Carl really focuses in on uh, what leadership and uh, doing things really well in the small church looks like. Um, he's also the pastor of Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in a place called Fountain Valley in California. I th- we talk about a little bit about them maybe in the, in the interview, I'm not sure, if, or that might have been offline, uh, but a, a pastoral transition time that he might be going through. Um, but that's been the place where he's been pastoring for a number of years anyway. And he has a new book out as well, just called Small Church Essentials. And so there are links to his books and the blogs that he has. He actually blogs uh, on, a, on a blog on Christianity Today. Um, and you can find those links on the show notes. And so for this episode, that's spiritualityforordinarypeople.com slash Carl. And that's Carl with a K, so K-A-R-L. Uh, I wanted to encourage you today, if uh, you've been listening for a while, or even if you haven't been, to head on to iTunes and leave a review for this podcast. That makes a huge difference in making the podcast more visible And uh, the best way to do that is just go into the iTunes store and there's a place to search for podcasts or there's really search for anything. If you just type in spirituality for ordinary people and uh, it should come up, you can click on it, click on ratings and reviews and just leave a rating and then a few words and can be very simple what you put there. Um, So I encourage you to do that. A whole bunch of have come in. Well, maybe not a whole bunch, but some have come in on the Canadian iTunes um, since I'm in Canada, and so I know lots of people there, not too many on the American one, but I know there's American listeners. So if you're listening in the States especially, but even if you're listening somewhere else in the world, head into your iTunes store and leave a review. And that provides me with a lot of encouragement, actually, to continue doing this. I wanted to read to you a couple of the reviews that came in. Um, so fairly recently, 
Linda Barron left a five-star review and uh, talking about episode 39 with Sarah Bessie. And she says, this was a great podcast. It ended with me wanting to hear more. I will definitely have to go look up Sarah Bessie's book. And that was a really great uh, episode. I mean, the guests that I happen to get on here have all been great. Um, but I've loved Sarah's writing um, that I've just recently read this past year. Uh, both of her books, um, but go listen to episode 39 if you haven't had a chance yet, uh, and then go pick up some of Sarah's books. Uh, I had another review from Queen of Photography, or just Queen. This is someone actually in my congregation, and she just said thumbs up and gave five stars. And she also wrote, um, I haven't listened to all of the podcasts, but I really should, because the ones I've listened to are really good. It's relatable, really, and you can learn how to go about things uh, as a Christian that you may be struggling with. Love it. Keep it up, Pastor. Uh, and she says, LOL, and I just learned in one of the podcasts, number 39, that I've been pronouncing his name wrong, and I'm ashamed of myself. But you should definitely go click on one of the podcasts. You won't regret it. And uh, don't worry about it, Queen. It's okay. Like most people pronounce my last name wrong. Uh, it's Bruff. But it's spelled B-R-O-U-G-H. So lots of people say bro or brew or something like that. But it is bruff, like the word rough, R-O-U-G-H, but with a B in front of it. So uh, don't worry about it. But now hopefully people will know how to pronounce my last name. Uh, yeah, so if you're able to leave a review like Queen did or like Linda did on iTunes, uh, regardless of, of where you're living, that means a lot to me. And it just also helps people find the podcast. Or feel free to recommend, rec just recommend it directly to a friend. Send an email to them and just let them know maybe about an episode that was meaningful to you or helpful to you. Uh, the other thing I'd like to encourage you to do, a couple more things, uh, is if you want to follow Spirituality for Ordinary People on Instagram, you can do that. Uh, so you go into Instagram and you can search for... The name is actually Spirituality for Ordinary Podcast. So there's no people in there, right? <laughs> um, Spirituality for Ordinary Podcast. You're limited on how long it can be on Instagram. And I kind of wanted the word podcast in there because this is primarily a podcast. Uh, but if you want to follow me there, you can. I also have my personal Instagram, which you can probably find too for Matthew Bruff. Um, but uh, the podcast one is there too. Uh, and then finally, if you really want to provide tons of support to what I'm doing here and help me uh, pay for hosting costs for uh, the podcast to be hosted uh, um, and also things like microphones and equipment for the future, you can uh, financially sponsor the podcast on Patreon. And there are always links to this in the show notes. So you can just head, head there and then find the support this podcast link. Um, but, uh, that means a lot to me too. And there's been some uh, new patrons, which have been great. And I thank them for, uh, signing up and supporting the podcast in that way. But that's enough kind of promoting those things. Uh, I really want you to get into this interview. And so we'll dive in, uh, to today's interview on this episode 41. Thanks for listening today. Today on the podcast, I have Carl Vaders. I'm just thrilled to have uh, you on the show today, Carl. Welcome. Thanks, Matt. Great to be with you. Yeah. Um, Carl is uh, 
talks and writes and is all about um, helping people think through small churches, like what it means to be pastors and leaders in small churches. Um, You've just heard an intro from me kind of telling you about his uh, couple of blogs and some books. Um, But you're kind of have become a bit of an expert, I think, in, in kind of thinking through small church. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, but before we kind of get into that, what, what is the size of a small church? Just so that people kind of know what we're talking yeah. about when we say a small church. Yeah, you know, it, it's important to frame it. Absolutely. Uh, I, when I talk about small churches, I talk about anything, pretty much anything under 250. Okay. Um, the usual line that people draw is 200 because at around 200, they call it the 200 barrier. But the 200 barrier, any, anybody who talks about it acknowledges that you can hit that anywhere from 150 to 300. They just designate it as the 200 barrier because over that size, you cannot pastor the same way anymore. Mm-hmm. It has to be handing most of the pastoral duties off to under shepherds, departmental heads, associate pastors, those kinds of things. But I like to stick with the, the 250 rather than 200 because the moment you mention 200 in church growth circles, people think you're talking about church growth because breaking the 200 barriers like the the big mantra for the church growth thing. And I'm not a church growth guy. That's not my expertise. I'm not anti-church growth. It's just not my area of expertise. So I typically talk about churches under 250 because over 250, you really got to change the way you pastor. Mm, okay. Um, and like, just so you know as well, like my context is kind of is Canadian context and prairies. Um, and uh, like if, if there was a church of 200 and my denomination in in my city, that would that's the largest church in our entire synod in our whole right. province for, for our denom. There's there's bigger churches for sure in my city, um, but for but for my denomination, that would be whoa wow you got two hundred yeah. people that's oh. a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, I, yeah, no, I know so it's I contextual was, I was, too, probably right. Yeah, I was born and raised in Canada, so I'm aware of that too. So, um, uh, but yeah, and and I'll often hear that, and they'll say, well, then it doesn't apply to me because two hundred is big where I am. But that the point isn't comparison. The point is. Wherever you are, under 200 or 250, you pastor in one way, and over 200 or 250, you pastor in a different way. So it doesn't matter if every church around you is huge or if every church around you is tiny. Those numbers, just simply by the physical nature of being able to be in you know, only one place at a time, you're, there are certain you know you hit certain numbers of people, and you just got to change the way you do it. And that doesn't matter where you are. But yeah, I absolutely understand that. That I, You know, I live in Orange County, California, so I live in, you know, mega church central. Right. Within 45-minute drive of my church is are, are a dozen world-famous mega churches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we start, you know, starting with Saddleback Church, the original Calvary Chapel, the original Vineyard Church, you know, they're, they're all right here. So it's a different context, but for actually pastoring the church, there's a lot of similarities. Right, right. Um, so why write about small churches or talk or focus on small churches? Why, why has that become a focus for you? Well, because I tried to grow it and failed. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that's only half a joke. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, again, I'm here in Orange County. I, I look around, I see other churches growing. So for years, I did all the church growth stuff. All the can't miss stuff did miss for me. Mm-hmm. And so I went through a long season thinking, well, it must be me. I must be broken because everybody says this stuff works for everybody. And if you can't build a big church in Orange County with all the people around, I mean, it's not like I don't have a population to draw on. There are tons of people here and I just couldn't make it work. 
And so I went through a real season of soul searching and almost leaving ministry and frustration and everything else. And then um, didn't feel led to either leave the ministry or to leave my current church. And so I had to redefine what success looked like. And uh, I started looking around and realizing, hey, we notice all the big churches around us, but Orange County has 10 times more small churches than big churches, just like everywhere. Um, And what does it mean to be a healthy small church? And when I actually asked myself and actually asked my you know, volunteers and staff at our church the question, what does a healthy small church look like? Nobody had an answer. Hmm. And I thought, isn't that weird? 80 to 90% of the churches in the world are small. And a group, a whole bunch of people who've been in the church all their lives can't answer what a healthy small church looks like. So I just started to discover that for my own self and for my own ministry at this church. And as I began to discover things, I started realizing I really had to look for them. I couldn't just, there wasn't just a book I could pick off the shelf that gave me the answers. I had to scramble. I had to research. I had to go outside even of the church world to discover principles that explained to me why the church world worked this way. And as I started assembling them, I started writing them down. It turned into the grasshopper myth, my first book. I had so much material left over. I thought, well, I'll throw that on a blog because I hear people do that. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, five years later, it's it's really it hit instantaneously. It was a shock how instantaneously it registered with people. Mm-hmm. Because here I am, I, and I'm just a a pastor of a small church in a town nobody's ever heard of, um, who wrote a book and didn't even call a publisher because I knew no one would be interested in it. So I self-published it. Had a friend of mine print up a bunch of copies, mm-hmm. put a blog out there that had no reason for anybody to even know it existed, but the need is so great. Mm. And and that's, I'm convinced that that's why it just hit. The need was so great. And then the second reason that I think it hit strong was I just had so much material. I just put a ton of it out there. So I've written three blog posts a week for five years, which is a ridiculous amount of output. Whatever the opposite of writer's block is, I've got the opposite of that for the last five years. (laughs) That's great. I've just got so much stuff that I want to get out. And so the fact that it's always going to be there and it's always being refreshed kind of became, well, he's the go-to guy because there's always going to be something new there. Yeah, yeah. And like, like I've read your blog posts and you've, you've written as good, as good or better as I have. Um, and, and why yours hasn't clicked like mine. I think the only reason is mine, I, I'm doing a ridiculous pace. You're, you're just always there. Yeah. Like yeah, I, I used to write about, uh, about small church as well, like small and, and leadership. And, and it kind of, I think it, it wasn't, it didn't end up being becoming a passion. I think it was kind of, it was important to me at the time. And it was, it was kind of when I got connected to your blog and kind of saw what you were doing. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's the, uh, there's a the podcast that's kind of on small churches as well. That's uh, 200 churches. Yeah. 200 churches. And uh, was really into that. And I think I just kind of fizzled out. Like I didn't have the same kind of amount that was running through my head that you've had yeah. to, to put out there. Um, and then I just kind of shifted focus and kind of done some other things. Um, and that's, and that's fine. That's great. So it's uh, it, something that kind of occurs to me too, is that, and I think I might've read this somewhere on, on your, on your blog too, is just that, over half of the over half of Christians go to small ch- small churches yeah. that go to churches yeah. under two hundred and fifty or under two hundred, um, and so that's like over a billion people. Yeah. So why not talk about that? You know, it's it's okay yeah. if it's okay to talk to the to the billion Christians yeah. and not the yeah, and, 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 <laughs> and not not even why not talk about it, but why isn't everybody talking about it? I mean, yeah. Any, yeah. Any company 
or a product that was trying to reach people and trying to sell somebody something or trying to get a message out to somebody that was ignoring a billion people, right? right? Or not resourcing the people who are overseeing that billion people. Because that's really what it is. They're not ignoring the billion people, but they're not resourcing the pastors of that billion people anywhere close to the amount that we need to be resourcing them. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, for whatever reason, that passion just kind of registered with me. It has stuck with me. I can't shake it at all. And the need, I mean, I could I could do this for a hundred years with a thousand other pastors writing at my pace to begin to catch up with the amount of resources that are out there for larger churches and for church growth. The need is just massive. Well, like, I wonder why that, do you have a sense for why that's kind of been that way? Is it just... Yeah, actually, it came from a a little line from my wife when I was writing all this stuff down and constantly whining to her about why isn't somebody writing about this? She said, well, you write a book. And I said, I'm not going to write a book about this. I said, nobody knows who I am. So nobody's going to read a book by me. I'm just a small church pastor nobody's ever heard of. She said, well, who else is going to write a book about small churches other than a small church pastor? Mm -hmm. And how many famous ones do you know? Like, so that's kind of the thing, you know, we know the pastors of big churches because they're visible because it's big. We see big things. It's just physically that way. There are a lot of people there. The buildings are large. They are physically noticeable. So when the big church pastors put on the conferences, we go because we see them, we know about them, but there's not a lot of resources for small churches because it has to come from those who are doing small church. Mm-hmm. because they're the ones who have the experience. And yet, who knows of a famous small church pastor that you're going to go, oh, if they're speaking, I'm going to show up. Our vi- because our visibility is low, right. therefore, it's really hard. For, for a simple thing like my new book is going to be actually with a publisher, because uh, I've got enough of an audience now. But a publisher, I'm learning how much money, for instance, that they put in before the book is published. And they're into this by thirty-five or forty thousand dollars already before yeah. a single book has been printed. Right. So they've got to have some reassurance that they're going to at least make that money back. Right. And wouldn't it be nice if they made a little bit extra so that they're actually making money? Sure. You know, they they're willing to do it. They're willing to take the chance on it. I want I want it to sell more. You know, mostly because I want to get it out to others, but also because I think that kind of investment deserves to be paid back to the company that's making the investment. Sure. So it's, it's hard. That, 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 that's a big part of the reason it's hard to, um, hard to print, make resources for small churches because the avenues to get it to them are often limited because the names attached to, um, to resources that people want tend to be coming from a big church perspective. Yeah. And some of those, like, I, I know you've said this before, like a lot of those resources coming from larger churches, they're fantastic resources. Like they're, mm-hmm. they're really good, um, but they don't always necessarily apply. One of the things that I've really loved about what you've done is you, you've, you talk about leadership as your, as your, your thing. It's not just kind of talking about small churches and there's, there are small church pastors who have written, but a lot of them are not writing in the, um, in the context of we're, we're writing about church health or we're writing about, well, what does church growth look like in a small church that right. probably is going to stay small? Um, but you write about that kind of stuff. Um, so you might have, like for myself, I've kind of shifted my focus away from that that kind of writing towards more talking about spirituality, and I write some fiction as well. Um, so I'm a small church pastor, but I'm not really writing about being in a small church. 
Right. Um, so it's coming from that perspective. So I think that's really valuable about what you're putting out there. So if there's other pastors who are listening, and I know there are, and most of them are probably small church pastors too, if they don't know about, if you don't know about Carl, you should go and, and look <laughs> him up and, and we'll have a link to all of this stuff on the, on the uh, website that you can go and get. Um, but I kind of want to shift a little bit and talk a bit right. about spiritual practices because that's kind of what this podcast is, is all about. Um, but let's stay kind of focused on that small church setting. What, like, what are the possibilities for spiritual practices that might happen more naturally in a small church setting than they, than they might in, in the larger environment? Yeah, um, in, in a small church, you are, I'm going to use the word forced. You're forced to deal with things that you can avoid in a big church. Yeah. Um, you know, you have an awkward relationship with someone in a big church. Okay, fine. You switch small groups. You go to a, you go to one of the other one of the ten different weekend services that they're offering, and you never or, gonna or just sit on the other side of the auditorium. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, and you got to get up binoculars to see the other person. Um, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's that that makes it easy. But in a smaller church, it, you got to work through the issue, or it actually affects and infects an entire body. In a church of fifty, if you got two people who are in any place of, especially if they're in any kind of leadership or, or respect within the church, and they've got a real issue with each other, they can change the whole dynamic of the church. So uh, that's one of the reasons why a lot of small churches struggle, because they don't take the time to actually go through those. But the advantage of it is, if you do stick with it, and if you do push through to the other side of that, then it, I, well, here, here's the illustration I like to use for that. Um, anytime I do pre-marriage counseling, I tell the couple, uh, a day with a conflict resolved is better for your relationship than a day with no conflict. Hmm. Now, I'll take all the conflict-free days I can get. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but I recognize that for the long-term strength of my marriage, if we have a conflict and we fix it, we have actually made the marriage stronger than if we didn't have the conflict at all. Right. Same thing in a church. So if you're in a small church, you are forced to, to deal with it. And when you deal with that conflict and you get past it and you learn from it, you have made yourself and the church stronger and better in that process. And the, the smaller church forces you to deal with that. In a smaller church, you're not going to sliver yourself into the kids only see other kids and the divorced moms are only in the divorced moms group or whatever. And all of those things have value. I, I have recommended a divorced moms group for divorced moms in our church at other churches to go to because right. they don't have it and they get help there. Right. right. But, but there's a benefit to sitting with people who aren't, who are also in different stations of life and have different experiences and that, 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 that intermingling of people from different backgrounds that is forced upon you in a smaller church has great value. Yeah. Like one of the things I've really valued about, and this surprised me as a parent, um, cause we, uh, we planted the church before we had our daughter. Now she's, uh, uh, eight and, um, something that kind of shocked me is I always thought, Oh, you know, I hope that when we're planting this church, it's going to grow. We're going to have like, by the time we have kids, we're going to have this Sunday school and it's going to be big and it's going to be fantastic. And, you know, we have a Sunday school. They, they meet during the service and, you know, sometimes there's three and sometimes there's 15 um, kids in the Sunday school, but actually in a lot of ways, I actually don't like, it's nice. I like to see my daughter playing with the other kids in the Sunday school but I actually care less about that. Yeah. I love that other adults in the church know who my daughter is and she knows who they are. And 
I see that with other kids in our church too, that they're interacting across generations and that, and we don't even plan for that. Right. Like, I think that's the difference that can happen in large churches, right. but, but only if, but only if somebody's planning it. Yeah. And, and we and, just and, have coffee time in the sanctuary because it's the only room we've got. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. and people are running around, kids are running around and some of the, sometimes they're playing together and sometimes they're talking with adults. Um, we had these great coloring sheets in Advent that we used because we had some intergenerational services really to give Sunday school teachers a break. And so the, we just set up tables at the back and it wasn't just kids on the coloring sheets, like adults would go there too. And, yeah. and so they'd just be doing that together. Yeah. So, you know, that, that stuff is like, again, if you're going to do that in a bigger setting, you can do all of it, right. but it's a lot harder. Like those, those are things that you can just throw together yeah. in, a, in a small well, that, church that's, and it just that's happens. That's why large churches are constantly pushing the importance of small groups. Right. Because the challenge in the large room is that people t- get passive. And so you have to push them towards connectivity and, 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 and activity. Yeah. Uh, with the, the challenge in the smaller church is, um, well, quite frankly, the control freaks. <laughs> that you know, even it, it's it, it's if you're if you're if you want to go to a church and be passive, you're going to go to a big church. If you're a control freak, you're going to find a small church because that's where you can have the control. So yeah. a, a big church has a different uh, small church has a different issue. It isn't it isn't having the relationships. It's making sure that. Everybody gets a say. You have to be more, for lack of a better word, democratic in a smaller church. Have every, you know, make sure that everybody's voice is 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 being brought into the mix. Uh, in a big church, nobody expects to have their voice into the mix unless you're hired on the staff. You're not going to. You don't expect it, and that's fine. But in a small church, the health of the small church comes from the the interrelationships, and you want to be sure that those are balanced and healthy, and there isn't somebody dominating that. And it's really easy to dominate that in a small church. So a good pastor, a good leader of a small church doesn't, isn't overly heavy handed in their leadership. They tend to um, look at it like, okay, how do I take all these ingredients and make sure that they're always staying in balance so that everybody's voice uh, has some say and everybody has a, has a place that they can fulfill. Because a big part of the reason they come to a small church is because they can matter more in a small church and those relationships uh, and, and the strength of those relationships is the strength of the church. Hmm. So how does that contribute to, to overall spiritual health for, for a person? So if somebody's, how, how is being part of a smaller church or really maybe any church <laughs> contribute to spiritual health? Because I think there's lots of people that might think, I don't really need to be part of a church at all yeah. to yeah. be spiritually healthy. Yeah, there's a, there's a real growing tendency in that, especially with the, um, the ability through social media to be able to listen to a podcast or watch a live stream. And we both live stream and podcast our services. So I'm not against either of those things. I wouldn't do them if I thought they were bad. Um, So the way I like to put it is um, online church is real church. It's just not enough church. Hmm. Um, And to get a fully rounded sense of real church, you have to have community. You have to be breathing the same air. Uh, there are certain things, I mean, how do you, it is possible, yes, to watch a live stream communion service and to take the elements in your own home, get out a piece of bread and get a cup and actually physically do the same act as the church online is doing it. But I have a hard time calling it communion because you're not communing, you're not in the same room. 
And there's, there, it's important to be in the same room with each other. Uh, you know, you can't lay hands on each other for prayer. You can't read a mood. You can't respond in the same way uh, when you're online. So all of these other things are good. They're helpful, but they should be considered supplemental to the actual physical church experience of being in the room with other believers. Now, that does not have to happen in a physical church building. It can happen in a house church. It can happen by meeting at a coffee shop. It can happen formally or informally, but it does need to happen. It needs to happen regularly because without the actual community of other believers, our faith tends to dry up and shrivel. Mm -hmm. Christianity is not a solo faith. It's just not the way it's designed. It is designed to be lived in community. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes this kind of just came to me uh, thinking about like if, you know, when someone say consumes content, say uh, online, they're listening to music, say, um, and they've got their Spotify or their Apple music or whatever that they're paying their subscription. And that's relatively cheap to listen to music on a monthly basis. But then, you know, where I am, like if my favorite rock band, when I was a little bit younger, if they even came to say Minneapolis, I think that's only an eight hour drive and a hotel night and a $400 ticket. And and I would go because the live experience, there's something else going on there. Um, And we'll pay through the nose for experiences or even say educational programs Oh, I'll buy the book, but oh yeah, that author is speaking at this conference and they're phenomenal and I know it and I know being there in the room, it's just so much more. So I'll pay, like I'll buy a plane ticket and I'll pay, you know, thousand dollars to be at the live event. Um, yeah. Yet, and it also matters yet, more. Yet, yet church is free. Like we can... <laughs> yeah. Well, because it costs you something, because it costs you that time and because it costs you that money is also a part of the value added in addition to physically being in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Likely. Yes. Yeah, but it's just kind of an odd thing, right? Because some people think, well, I can have my private experience. But yeah, in other spheres of life, we it's those communal experiences that we actually crave and, and long for, like sporting events, same thing. Like yeah. I, I, I don't love watching baseball on TV, but I really like going to uh, the ballpark. Yeah, that's that's great. I'll, I'll watch hockey any way I can take it. Same with soccer, but <laughs> but baseball, I, I need to be there a lot. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's interesting. There's sociologists now say that when you talk about something, your brain has a similar reaction to the way it reacts when you've actually done something about it. Hmm. So that's why there are some companies and churches that spend all their t- excuse me all their time in committee meetings because they feel like, well, if we talked about the problem, we fixed the problem. <laughs> right? And it's yeah. kind of the same yeah. thing on church. If I if I've watched a church service, I my brain tells me I've had church. Right. And I haven't really, I, I, is it legitimate church? Yes. It's just not enough church. Again, I'm not putting that down, yeah. but you have not had the full experience that your brain thinks you've had. Watching it is not the same as being there. Yeah. 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 That's really good. Um, what do you, what do you see people struggling with? Like you're a pastor, you've been a pastor for, uh, well, uh, of this church over 25 years, but yeah, this church 25 and in general, 34, 35, something like that. And what do you see people today struggling with most in their, in their spirituality? There is a, a once in a millennium shift happening in our culture. And I think we're only at the beginning of it and it's being driven by technology into hyperspeed. And it is a similar challenge to our 
underlying presumptions about life similar to what we went through at the Reformation, hmm. um, but not in the healthy direction that the Reformation took us. Uh, it's in a lot of ways an undoing of that. And um, it is, it's not just, oh, young people today. There's always been a young people today thing going on. That's not what's happening now. This is a bigger thing than that. I mean, it's, it, it's at the point where we're, we're questioning virtually every underlying presumption that we've just assumed to be true for a long, long period of time. Some of those underlying presumptions were wrong and need to be thought through. Sure. Uh, and every underlying presumption needs to be checked in on every once in a while, even if we simply confirm that, yeah, we're going to stick with that one. Right, which is so kind of question. So the question in the Reformation too, right? Yeah, yeah. The questioning yeah. of it is healthy, but <clears throat> we are because we're in this place of shifting. There's a, a lot of uncertainty in people's lives, and people are having a harder time uh, just managing the basic stuff of life. Um, even as recently as when I first started in ministry, and I would I'll use the illustration of premarriage counseling again. I was you know, doing premarriage counseling in the early '80s. In which even then, it was still fairly expected that we knew what the husband's and wife's roles were going to be. The wife was going to do the inside the house work and the guy was going to do the outside the house work. That's not biblically defined. That's just physically the way things have been for generations. That made premarriage counseling easy because there was a bunch of things that you just didn't need to talk about. They just knew you know, the guy's going to be the primary breadwinner and is going to do the gardening and the woman is going to do either stay at home with the kids or maybe have a part-time small job and is going to wash the dishes. Okay. That is way oversimplifying. And again, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just what it was. Right. And now um, when I do premarriage counseling, I can't assume any of that. Part of what I have to talk through is who does what in the relationship, who's going to be the primary breadwinner, who, when, when, and if that shifts and when you have kids, if the woman is the primary breadwinner, what's that going to mean for daycare and who's going to do what? And how will you negotiate who does which role in the household? So everything is now up for grabs, and we are needing to make uh, front-brain conscious decisions about things that previous generations just took for granted automatically. Now, again, the fact that we need to that we're questioning those things isn't bad. In fact, in many ways, it's very good. All our presumptions always need to be questioned, but it makes life that much more complicated. And so people need to, to have a church that, one, gives them a sense of stability in the middle of all that confusion. But two, they want to know that even while you as a church are giving me a sense of stability, I need to know that you get my confusion and aren't mad at me for being confused. That's good. Right? There's too many churches out there that are so assured of themselves, but they're assured of, they're sure of things that the Bible isn't sure about. The Bible, you know... <laughs> <laughs> we know the Bible is true. We know God exists. We know Jesus is God's son. But we also know that this color hymn book is what God prescribed for us to sing out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Uh, no, not that. And so, it's the single biggest thing we've got to decide in 2018. Yes. It's the most important conversation. And it's the thing that takes up all the <laughs> bandwidth of our conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So if a church can say, these things we stand on, but I get why you're confused and I'm not upset at you for coming in and asking me, how do I know there's a God? And why, why Jesus, and if I do pick Jesus, why does, is Jesus' exclusive way to have it? Isn't that, that sounds arrogant to me. Right. And isn't inclusiveness mean that they're all just as equal? And a church that can say, 
no, we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but we understand, respect your, uh, your questions about that, and we will walk with you through that. So this stability and adaptability, this combination of those two things is what a healthy church needs to have right now. And that's hard. Yeah. It yeah. just is. It's hard. Yeah. Um, so, so how do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you how I do it. Okay. I'm not going to presume that anybody else should do it my way. What I am always actively working to strip strip back everything that is not essential. Um, so I'm always questioning things and looking at it and going, okay, is this really part of the absolute core of the gospel? Hmm. And if not, then I need to hold to it more loosely. I always, you know, you see online somebody comes along and they've got some argument going. And whenever anybody says, hey, this proves the existence of God or this proves this or this proves that, Anytime somebody makes an argument that too closely matches my worldview, I'm always suspect of it hmm. because I'm aware of my own tendency to, towards confirmation bias. Okay. I want to believe, I want the things that I believe to be proven to be true, but what if the thing I believe isn't necessarily true? So I'm always looking to strip it back to, okay, what are the basic things? And for me, what I've come down to in the last couple of years that are just and I, I keep drilling my congregation with this. I'm probably going to write about it at some point soon. God actually exists. It's a thing that we don't even think about, but uh, all of a sudden it's escaped my head. The, the, the New Testament passage, if we want to come to him, we have to believe that he is. Some translations say we must believe that God exists and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden... The address of that passage is flown out of my head. So what the Bible says is, if you're going to believe in God, the first thing you have to believe is that he exists. So if I start with that premise that God actually exists, then I don't get to make him up. But I do get to discover him. And that's a big thing for me. I got to, I'll constantly ask myself, is the God in my head, any part of that, a God that I made up? Or am I actively discovering the God who actually exists? Hmm. And for me, if the, the fact that God actually exists and that he is discoverable is truth number one. And truth number two is that the Bible is our roadmap to discovering who he is, at least, and, and gets us on that path to discovering and the place that we can always check back with. And I'm, I wander off on some path and I go back to the map and go, okay, here's where I am on the map. I'm, I'm okay. It feels weird because it's different than I was thinking, but here's where I am on the map. Or this feels great. I think this is what I've always believed. And I look at it and go, I'm not on the map anymore. Right. So to me, there are two big things. God exists and he gave us his truth in his word. And anything outside of that is up for grabs. But as long as I know that, once I know that, you can change the color of the carpet 10 times a day. I don't care. If God exists and the Bible is true, do what you want. I don't care. Right? That, that, that's enough for me to stand on. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, but really, the best churches have hardwood floors anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that maybe yours does. 
No, no, we've got oh. some pretty lousy, uh, like vinyl something. Whatever was really uh, yeah. cheap is what is in ours. Yeah, no, we've got but, carpet um, in ours only because we tried the cement floor because it was cool industrial look, but the sound was driving everybody yeah. crazy. Man, the, those services don't work for audio. The first congregation I served um, had a historic building about 100, and, I think it's about 140, getting close to 150 years old now. Well, um, Canada, for, really for, and for, for Western Canada, that's. Oh, even that's, more so. that's an yeah. older church. Um, and just beautiful, like beautiful wood, everything, all the original pews, these curved pews, beautiful stained glass windows. It was really nice. Um, and the sound in there was just phenomenal. A little church, like held, had maybe about 150, 160 seats, but incredible acoustics and just like great aesthetics. I loved it. So I miss that because I'm not in a very nice building right now, but oh, I know. that's okay. I, that's I get okay. that the building doesn't matter, but sometimes it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. it doesn't um, matter until it does yeah. <laughs> yeah um how about like kind of talked a lot about leadership and about sort of how you try to help others and and uh, struggling with that sense of uncertainty what do you, what do you do in your own life like what do you what does your own personal spiritual practice look like in terms of say prayer or what kinds of things do you do on a regular basis to to yeah. keep yourself connected to god seeking yeah it, i mean it's there's there, there's no i i haven't found a secret key to that and i'm I, as you know it's 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 the basics it's it's kind of like when people talk about uh what there was a somebody i think did a a uh graduation speech that got passed around a few years ago and it started with you know floss every day or something and they just went through this list of well that's the stuff everybody's supposed to do every day but their right. point was if you do that stuff every day that's where health and quite frankly out of that a lot of happiness comes and it's just the boring stuff of every day. Hmm. And so my spiritual practices are the boring stuff of every day. It's, you know, you got to take time for prayer. You got to take time for Bible reading. You got to take time to slow down and, and, and recognize and acknowledge the, that God is ever present in your life. Um, so, like, how, and, so how do you do that? Can I stop you on that one? Because yeah. what, like, what does it actually look like to slow down? and yeah. acknowledge the presence of God in your life. We were talking before we started the interview about uh, you have a pretty busy schedule coming up. Yeah. So, Yeah. Um, for, uh, for years, I tried to do the morning devotional because uh, that's the best time. That's, I'm not, you know, we're, we're at our best, our freshest. We don't have all kinds of other stuff coming at us. But what I have discovered in my own life is um, in the morning, I've, I've just got this, you know, overly active brain. It, it causes me more problems than it brings benefits at times. Um, but in the morning is when I'm freshest. And in the morning, I've got all of these things. I got this idea for the book and I've got this idea for a blog post and I got this idea for a sermon. I got to make sure I call this person and I can't get that stuff out of my brain until I actually write it down on my laptop or on a piece of paper. So I'm trying to do devotional and just in order to get rid of the clutter, I end up writing all this other stuff. So I realized mornings don't work for me because that's when I have to be in output mode. Uh, and then in the middle of the day, I hit this kind of slow down. And so the middle of the day is usually when I do my, my devotional. That's when I need to pause, reflect, slow down, recalibrate for the rest of the day. I don't recommend midday for most people because for most people, midday is the worst possible time to do a slowdown for devotional. Are you yeah. kidding me? But for me, it's kind of like a spiritual siesta. Yeah. 
uh, it's it, that's how it works for me. And, and, every, and everybody's got to do their own thing. And if I'm traveling and so I'm speaking at a conference and they've got me up at nine and I'm speaking till four in the afternoon, then it'll be in the evening as my slowdown. Because the way I see it is my writing and my research and my speaking, that's output. And my devotional time, that's input. That's receiving from God spiritually, emotionally. And I, I'm, I, my body and my emotions are in output mode in the morning. And in the evening is when I need the input to refresh me from the day. Yeah. Uh, again, I kind of wish it was reversed because I like the idea of starting the day, you know, good morning, Lord, and we're going to start the day with the Lord. We're going to lift up your spirit, and then I'm going to head into the day filled with Jesus. Right. I wish it was that way for me. It just doesn't work that way for me. Right. Well, I kind of like that, though, because a lot of you hear from a lot of people talking about morning devotions, and there's lots right. of resources to help you do that. Um and uh, you hear from lots of people, you know, that's a great way to start. And it, and it is, you know, I, I usually do that. That's my usual mode um, is to, is to start in the morning with, with prayer, scripture reading of some kind. Um, but it's kind of nice to hear because you're kind of listening to, well, that doesn't work for me. Maybe it's a, a physiological thing, right? Um, and it's just kind of there and you figured that out. So I think that's part of the message of this podcast too, generally, is just for people to try things. And if they're not working, like don't beat yourself up about it. You know, there might be another way. So like these ideas are good for people to hear just to hear, oh, okay, yeah. You know, I do actually have that. I do have a 20 minute break at work in the afternoon and I'm I'm messing around on Facebook for 15 minutes of that. So maybe I can actually stop doing that and and give that time when I haven't prayed in the morning and that hasn't been working for me. Try try something else, right? Yeah. Now the challenge midday is you don't have the amount of time then because something is going to interrupt you and it's going to happen. But, and so at first when I started doing it, I kind of started feeling guilty. You know, I I was able to put an hour in the morning and I can only do 20 minutes most days, maybe half an hour. Mm -hmm. But more is happening in that 20 minutes than was happening in the previous hour. Right. So I just have to look at it and go a quality 20 minutes is better than a mediocre hour. Yeah. Like I've even, (laughs) I've started shifting, like I'll still do my morning uh, prayer, but I'm finding like I used to move my administration to the afternoon, like going through emails. And then I would start to lose focus. Like I just, cause I was getting tired, Mm -hmm. tired in the afternoon. And so I wasn't necessarily putting a lot of thought into actually what we're, kind of important emails to people. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and they were on my mind all morning thinking, oh, I got to get back to that person. I wasn't dealing with them because I'm thinking I'm most productive in the morning. So I'll work on writing sermons, mm-hmm. creative output, all of that kind of stuff. And then I'll move my administration in the afternoon. Well, I've switched that around in the last few weeks and I've been really liking it because what, because uh, sermons are kind of bubbling all the time in the back of my mind. Um, but I don't want to be thinking when I'm working on a sermon, I don't want to be thinking about the emails I got to send. Yeah. So I've actually moved those to first thing in the morning, even before breakfast, I, I try to get a bunch of that stuff out of the way. So I don't have to think about it for the rest of the day. Yeah. Um, and then in the afternoon, I feel like, well, I've got time. It's actually going to be more productive of me to even take a 15 minute nap. Think about my sermon, mm-hmm. go take a sleep. And then as soon as my nap is over, it's way easier to work on the sermon. Oh, absolutely. But when I've got to do things and little things and emails to do, I can't rest because yeah. I'm just thinking about them all the time. And I, it's easier for me to kind of put aside a sermon or a big topic in the back of my mind uh, and, and take a bit of a break. So it, like, I think that's maybe just the news to people that just kind of know your body and know your brain and, yeah. 
And this might work for me for a month and then it doesn't work again and I'll probably shift it around. Again. Yeah. I mean, and for, for a lot of people, the process of writing or creating something is a, a challenge and they've got to kind of, they've got to buck themselves up for it. And yeah. so the devotion in the morning that gives you that thing, especially if you are unlike you, you and I have this amazing opportunity to actually do for a living what we are passionate about. Yeah. And I recognize that most people don't have that. Most people got to do nine to five in something that they don't like, or at best, they're they don't have passion for, but they're fine with. And so, if that's your, then I get why. Okay, in the morning, you got to have that devotional just to fill yourself up to face something that is unpleasant that you're going to have to do for the next eight hours. Yeah. So for most people, I think that's a big part of the way that goes. But for folks like you and me who not only get to do what we you know, for a living, what we're passionate about, but who also have this kind of active brain where my problem isn't that I got to buck up for the day. My problem is I got so much going on. I'm barely going to get it all done because I've got this drive for it. Yeah. So the slowdown midday is the refresher. It's the same thing. And if my, if my devotions quite often turn immediately very quickly into a short nap as well, yeah. which I believe is just a spiritual practice as anything else that I do during the day. And I say that with absolute, I'm smiling as I say it, but I mean it fully. <laughs> the, 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 the bodily rest is just as vital to my spiritual life as it is to my physical and emotional life. It's a part of the way I'm built and other people can't nap at all. Uh, it's just the way they're built. So you, everybody's got to figure it out for themselves. You've got to, you've got to match. And if you don't, then devotions become just like a homework assignment that I dread mm. and you'll never do it and never get anything out of it. If you can't do it in a way that is natural and meaningful for you on a regular basis. Yeah. Now it doesn't mean that every time I have devotional, I get some revelation. Most of my devotions are like most of my workouts or most of my meals. I do it because I know I'm supposed to do it that day. And then we go about the rest of the day and I don't, think that each time I do it, I'm going to get some big rush of endorphins or adrenaline. No, I do it because I'm supposed to do it. And, but then you look back over years of doing it and you recognize, oh, okay, there, this growth happened because I was consistent with the discipline. Yep. So don't look for the big sugar rush every time you have a, um, or even most of the times, or even occasionally I, I, I can't remember the. Yeah, that's not true. I was going to say I can't remember the last time I got a big rush from a devotion. That's not true, um, but uh, it's I, I don't expect it, and I'm not upset right. when I don't have it because most of the time I don't. Right, right, and that's not to say it doesn't happen, but yeah, yeah. but it's not it's not the norm, and that's yeah. that's and, how and, it is. And, it's, and it's not the expectation. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and it's funny because sometimes when it is the expectation, I kind of, I kind of think of meals like I've, uh, so, you know, sometimes you prepare a meal and you think, wow, this is just going to be so great. And you put all your effort in and, and then it just kind of flops and you burn it you know, or something. Sometimes yeah. devotions are like that. Like you kind of come in with the expectation. Oh yeah. Okay. This is going to be great. And then at the end you're like, Oh, <laughs> nothing happened. Um, yeah. so uh, yeah, I think to that's where again you, you're kind of trusting in God. You're trusting in the Holy Spirit for that, right? Yeah, so absolutely. when you are kind of saying, "Well, I'm the arbiter of my own spiritual practice, and and I'm the one who's going to make this great," then it's probably not going to be great. Like you got to put that in God's hands. Yeah. On yeah. Sunday, I preached on the passage, "Christ's love." Well, part of it was on Christ's love compels us. Mm -hmm. When I talked about, it, I said, "You'll notice." It's Christ's love doing the compelling, not our love doing the compelling. Yeah. 
My salvation is not dependent on the degree of my love for Christ. My salvation is dependent on the degree of Christ's love for me. So, <laughs> absolutely. I can relax. It's yeah. not dependent on me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, now, have you ever been in a time where you've just kind of felt in a rut spiritually, like you just haven't been, it just hasn't been going well? Um, and if so, then then like what happened? What, what, what pulled you out? I mean, maybe... No, it's been mountaintop to mountaintop, man. Everything's been grading. <laughs> All right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I, I I go through those just like anybody anybody does. Yeah, there are seasons where you just, for lack of a better term, you're just not feeling it. Um, but any relationship goes through that, and I'm always wanting to remind myself that my relationship with Jesus is first and foremost a relationship. And every relationship, even the best ones, will go through dry times, seasons of difficulty where you're not quite, you know, um, feeling it for whatever reason. Um, And the only way I know to get through those difficult seasons is to go through them. (laughs) Just keep walking. Just keep walking. I, I, I don't have any key that says this will unlock your problem and get you past your dry spiritual season. I don't have a key. I've never discovered one that works for me anyway. The only thing that works for me is keep walking. Yeah. Um, I, I've, and do you mean like keep doing what you've been, what you're doing, right? Like doing, yeah. don't abandon it, right? No. Keep doing the stuff. Yeah. Keep doing the stuff. Now, every once in a while, I'll discover that part of the reason it's dry is because I'm doing it at exactly the same way and exactly the same time. And so the, the, they say after you've heard a song 20, 30 times or whatever, you stop hearing the words anymore. Um, and I think that's the case sometimes with our spiritual practices. If we're doing it in exactly the same format every time, then, um, it becomes just the physical act of doing it and you don't get as much out of it. So, um, I like, I'll change up, for instance, some years I'll read through the Bible. uh, There's a great Bible called the Daily Bible that does it in chronological order, and I love that one. My wife does that every single year. It works for her. I can't do it every year because every year I know on March 31st it's going to be this exact passage. You know, and and every year at Easter it's going to be this, and it doesn't necessarily match the Easter season. It just happens to be chronologically where we are in the Bible at that time. So I'll switch up how I read the Bible through every year so that at a you know, at a in this month I'll be having a different biblical reading than I did last month, last year at that month, right. and so that kind of shakes things up a little bit too. So yeah, changing the format up, I'll do that on a regular basis, just so I'm having it, it forces new experiences into into it. Sure. But that doesn't even necessarily shake me out of a rut as much as just simply just just keep doing it and get to the other side. I, years ago, I walked across Grand Canyon. And it's, it's it's this brutal walk. It's this amazing, gorgeous walk. I got to get myself back in shape and do it again. But w- the beginning of it, you're walking down into the canyon, and every step there's progress because you can see yourself descending into the canyon. And on the end, as you're ascending and getting out of it, there's this sense of accomplishment because every step you can see the next rim getting closer and closer and closer. But over half of your walk that day is in the middle where the rim behind you and the rim ahead of you do not 
change relative size that you can see. And it's, that's the hard, people think that climbing up out of it must be the hardest thing. No, it's not. Well, then going down must be the hardest thing because you're jamming your toes. No, the hardest thing is the flat walk in the middle for hours and hours where you cannot see physical progress by the rim behind you looking smaller or the rim ahead of you looking bigger. And that's what most of our spiritual walk is. We can't see the progress on a, on a daily basis. You just have to know there is progress happening and keep walking. Oh, that's so good, Carl. Um, thank you for doing this today. Hey, you're welcome. Good to be with you. Where can, uh, where can people go to find you online and find your books? Uh, yeah, newsmallchurch.com is my website. I'm actually going to be upgrading it a little bit soon. Um, okay. And then that's where you go there, you read the beginning of the podcast, you press read more, and then it takes you to Christianity Today, which is where the blog is actually housed. But I don't send people there because nobody remembers ChristianityToday.com backslash Carl Vaders, and you got to spell my name right. right. <laughs> <laughs> so the easiest way to get it started is NewSmallChurch.com because nobody misspells or forgets that. Right. And the new book is called Small Church Essentials. Yeah, Small Church Essentials uh, coming out in March 2018 uh, with Moody Press. Um, yeah, we're in the final stages right now as you and I talk in getting it, uh, getting it pulled together. And um, it's, it's got some, uh, it, it's the stuff that I've been working on in the, in the five years since I wrote The Grasshopper Myth. It's basically a... a um, uh, a written version of the conference talks that I've been doing for the last five years and the things that I've learned by talking with at this point now, thousands of other small church pastors over the last five years. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. I will, uh, I'll point people to those for sure. Um, with some links on the show notes and, uh, yeah, thanks again. It's been great. Oh, you're welcome, Matt.